Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Anthony and Allie and their testimony. We thank you for saving us from our sin, for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray tonight that you would fill us with faith, that you would encourage us for the work of proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus to our friends and our neighbors and our families and our co-workers and everyone we come into contact with. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start out with a question tonight. It's a very simple question, and it's one I hope that each one of you can answer. Baseball or soccer? Baseball? Soccer. Now, does anybody want, I have a microphone right here, does anybody want to defend their choice? Anybody? Baseball? No need to defend baseball. Soccer? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, okay, come on. There is no defense for baseball. Soccer is a great sport. It's a team sport. It requires athleticism, commitment, aggression on the field. You have to have a combination of strategy, personal skill, speed, accuracy in shooting, good coaching, good conditioning. None of which you need to have for baseball. (laughs) Rebuttal? Anybody? Come on, Archie. Team sport. (laughs) (laughs) There is no harder skill in the world athletically than hitting a baseball. You throw a a major league fastball, 90 mile an hour, which is slow now. You have two one hundredths of a second to decide where to swing, whether to swing, where to swing. If you're two millimeters high or two millimeters low, you're out. There's no other sport where you fail seven out of ten times and go to the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Anybody movie buffs? Anybody consider themselves a movie buff around here? Anybody? Anybody? Where are the crumb people? Are there no crumbs here tonight? Okay. John, what would you say if I told you I have never seen Citizen Kane the Godfather, Gone with the Wind, or Casablanca? <laughs> Why would you say that? When can we get together? Okay, okay. Now, what, what was that? I missed it, sorry. Now listen. Listen to how articulate, how opinionated, how impassioned we are when it comes to the things that we care about. The things that we love. Brothers and sisters, what we just witnessed was praise and honor and glory and evangelism for the things that we love, right? C.S. Lewis explains this phenomenon like this. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, of approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment 
spontaneously overflows into praise. Unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed, this is still Lewis, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't it lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are only doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people that, you, that with you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. We praise everything that we love and enjoy. We can't stop talking about the things that we love, the things that we find funny, the things that we find interesting, the things that we find enjoyable, and it's never enough for us to enjoy them by ourselves. It is not enough to like basketball or soccer or baseball by ourselves. We have to like it with other people. We will evangelize people to it. It's not enough to watch that favorite show of yours. Do you remember a few years back when Lost was big and Lane had evangelized half the church into Lost and we were all watching Lost together? Do you remember that? Okay, I was a part of that. (laughs) It's not enough to have simply seen Casablanca. If I tell you I've never seen it, some of you, like John, will begin plotting instantly how to remedy this great evil. Am I right? I know I'm right. We need, we want other people to share in the things that we love. And we're hurt and disappointed when people we love don't enjoy or learn to love the things that we love. Right? This is what it is to be human. This is how God made us. Now listen, my goal tonight is not to beat us up for not loving Jesus as much as soccer or baseball. Although some of us need to be beaten up for that, right? That's not my point or my goal. It's fine for you to like soccer. It's fine for you to like baseball and to want other, want other people to like it. It's fine for you to want to, other people to share in the movies that you love. What we want to work together to get over tonight, though, is the shyness and the fear that keeps us from talking about the Lord and Savior we love far more than we love soccer. We do love him here, don't we? We do love him, don't we? Do we love Jesus? I remember um, I had a pastor that whenever he prayed, he would always end his prayer with, 
I love you, Father. And it was so difficult for me because I could never bring myself to say to God, I love you. Because I always had ringing in the back of my head Jesus' words, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Right? So my guilt over my own sin, I would never say to God, I love him. And so I went to talk to him about it one day. He said, well, that's exactly why you need to tell him you love him. By faith. Tell him you love him. We're here tonight in this room because we love Jesus, but we're shy and we're fearful. We love him more than we love soccer. We love him more than we love baseball. We love him more than we love movies. We're shy and we're fearful. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I switched my passage tonight. Sorry to the screen, guys. Uh, We're going to look just at verses 9 and 10. There's a lot of good stuff before and a lot of good stuff afterward, but uh, just 9 and 10 is going to be our focus. We're not going to take a lot of time either. It's going to be really brief. Beginning in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now there are just a few things I want to point out. First of all, right away, I want us to see and be reminded of what God has done for us. God has called each one of us, if we are in Christ, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were nobodies, once we were sheep who had gone astray, each of us utterly lost in sin and misery and ruin. And God, in his mercy, called us out of bondage, out of our sorrow, out of our sin, out of our shame, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is there a soul here tonight who has not been transformed or changed by him? If so, come to him. Even tonight, there is no better time. He has called us all out of darkness and into light. And he has done more than that. This passage teaches us that he has made us his chosen race, the race of Christian. Not the race of black, not the race of white or Jew or Gentile, but Christian. He's made us a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He has taken hold of us and adopted us into his family. He has made us his own. We belong to him. He belongs to us. Once we were not a people scattered about, each doing his own thing. Now we are the people of God. Once we had no mercy, now we have received his mercy. Do you remember what a joy it was the very first time you felt the weight of the guilt that you had carried your whole life lifted off of your shoulders and placed on the head of Christ? Do you remember what that relief was like? The first time you realized that God, God sent his son to die for your sins, and you believed. Do you remember what it felt like for the first time to have a home or a family? 
to finally belong, not just to anyone, but to the living God, to God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, this is your reality. You are set apart, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are utterly secure in the family of God. You have nothing to fear in life or in death. And you can say with the Apostle Paul, as we confessed together last week in the service, in Romans chapter 8, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has chosen us. God has made us his people so that we can be free from fear, from worry, from anxiety about anything that has to do with this life. He has freed us so that we can do what he has called us to do without fear. And what he's called us to do, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, is proclaim his excellencies. To proclaim his excellencies, his character, who he is, what he's done. To proclaim his excellencies to who? To one another? Yes. To our bedroom ceilings, to the walls of our prayer closet. The word proclaim here means to tell forth, to publish, to declare abroad. God saved us from our sins so that we would proclaim his excellencies to a lost and a dying world. After all, that is what we do with everything that we love, right? God called you into his family to be his witnesses to our neighbors, to our city, to our co-workers. God has called us to be his witnesses, 
to proclaim his excellencies. Now, when we start to talk this way, it can get sort of heavy on us, right? And we start to think of, man, that means I have to sit down with people for, you know, everybody I come into contact with for an hour or two and explain the gospel and walk the Romans road or go through the four spiritual laws. But I want to tell you a little bit of my story, um, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. I don't know when I first became a true believer in Jesus. For the first five years of my life, I was part of a Southern Baptist church. And in that church, I heard the gospel. I was taught all of the Bible stories. I learned to read at the age of four by memorizing uh, Genesis chapter 1 in the King James. I, uh, by the time I was six, I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I was baptized. I was convicted of sin. I was afraid of hell. I had godly grandparents that prayed for me. I had a preacher who talked about sin and judgment. I had Sunday school teachers that taught me the Bible. And at the same time in my life, around five or six years old, my parents divorced. And from that point on, I was only ever in and out of church. But I was in and out of church. Just a few times a year, sometimes the same Southern Baptist church, Sometimes the liberal United Methodist Church that had a woman pastor, and later it had a country parson that turned this little congregation into a mega church, really weird and wild thing. Sometimes it was a highbrow uh, United Methodist Church with an organ and an orchestra and a minister in robes. Um, sometimes it was my cousin's Lutheran church. Sometimes it was my other cousin's Episcopal church. That was at least once a summer because we'd go and visit them. Growing up, I'd attend the occasional VBS at the Southern Baptist Church or at my great-grandmother's Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church. I even attended VBS occasionally at a Roman Catholic church. How many of you knew that Roman Catholics had vacation Bible school? It's true, they do. I have to think and believe that growing up as a boy, all of those things had a profound influence on the shaping of my conscience meaning I had a tender conscience. I, I remember very vividly the first time I ever took the Lord's name in vain. I was in kindergarten. I was uh, at recess, and it just happened. I had no idea where it came from, and I was so guilt-stricken. I cried. I was, ter- I was asking for God's forgiveness. I remember that, for me, the hardening of my heart against the Lord was something that I had to do deliberately. I remember when and where I was, specifically when I decided to do it. But as hard as I tried, I could never really kill my conscience. It was something that was always there. It was there like around fifth grade on the way to baseball practice. I asked my dad if hell was real. He didn't know what to say. And he said, well, I guess the Bible says so. And I said, then dad, why don't we go to church? And why don't we tell my friends about hell and about Jesus. I remember around the same time in my life, I had a, we had a unit in, on world history and we talked about the Middle East and I knew some things about the Bible more than anybody in my class and so this kid from China started asking me and I asked my dad, Dad, you have to take me to church so I can take this kid with me so he can learn about the Bible. I... In middle school and high school, it was weird. I was a bad kid. I really was. I got in a lot of trouble. But I also 
bought a Bible and read the entire Old Testament. In high school, uh, to the surprise of everybody, probably even myself, I stood up in class and defended Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I also, at the same time, was mocking and making fun of every Christian I knew. The two strongest and most earnest believers I knew, I simply referred to only as the atheist and the Nazi. But around the age of 17, something began to change. And I began to seek the Lord. And it wasn't any one thing. It was a combination of things. Now, some years back, Steve Moxie asked me who it was that led me to the Lord. And I couldn't give him an answer. I told him, well, a couple of things happened. I, I started to get everything I thought I had wanted in school with my grades, with baseball, with girls. And I still wasn't happy. That was one big thing. And on the other side, my Christian friends who were involved in leading Young Life uh, were the hardest partiers that I knew. And they invited me to be a part of Young Life. And so I began to think about hypocrisy, and I didn't want to be a hypocrite. Those two things together forced me to examine my life, examine what I really believed, examine what it meant for how I lived. And then I dug out that Bible that I bought, and I started reading it. I just started reading the New Testament. Read it three times in like three weeks. And things just started to make sense. Why Jesus died started to make sense. I was a new man and I started talking to people about Jesus. And I found a church. And guess what church I found? I went right back to that Southern Baptist church. Because all along it was clear to me that those people, every place I had been, those people were the serious ones. They were for real. They were real believers. It was just obvious growing up that that was true. I never doubted that. I never actually believed that the, the people at the United Methodist Church were even Christians. It just didn't occur to me to think so. Because they didn't take the Bible seriously. Now, Steve thought that that was remarkable because there was no preacher. There was nobody who led me to the Lord. But what I want to tell you tonight, the only point of going through all of that, guys, is this. No one person in particular led me to the Lord. Dozens and dozens, possibly a hundred, who knows how many people led me to the Lord. Men and women and peers who had faith to cast their bread upon the waters, who looked at a little boy or a teenage punk, when he showed up at church, or when he showed up at VBS, or when they saw him do something wrong, and had faith in that moment to say something. Probably weak, probably embarrassed, probably shy, probably afraid that it was a pointless, worthless endeavor. Knowing that I would be nasty in return. but in God's mercy for whatever reason, they had faith to sow seeds in my heart that God used to form and shape my conscience, to give me a fear of him that led and turned and blossomed into faith in him. I don't know who all of those people are. They don't know who they are. God does. And I'm standing here in front of you tonight to testify to the fact that when God's people have faith, 
when they say and do little things, when they testify to God's goodness, when they proclaim his excellencies, when they give him glory, God works. My job tonight is to encourage and strengthen us for our third and final commitment, which is to talk to somebody about Jesus once a week. And it is or can feel like a heavy commitment, especially if what we think that means is we need to sit down with people and once a week go through the Romans road with them. But I want us to think about this commitment as us agreeing together to have faith to cast our bread upon the waters. To trust that it will come back to us after many days. I want us to think about this commitment as a way to help change the way we see ourselves and our place in this world. I want us to think about this commitment as a way for us to take baby steps together to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is something that we can do. Every day, God, in his sovereign wisdom and goodness and kindness and mercy, brings the unbelieving world, those trapped in darkness, into contact with people who have seen his marvelous light. God does this. Every time we go to the grocery store, every time we go to the gas station, every time we go to Wendy's or Starbucks, every time we go to soccer practice, every time we go to the YMCA or to the library or the park, every time God brings us into contact with people who are in darkness. We go as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We go bearing the light of the world. And as we go, God brings people into contact with us. I used to always tell the college students on Tuesday nights, I would say to them all the time, you know, there's a campus over here of 40,000 people, right? And God has put you on this floor with this roommate and with that person across the hall and with that person sitting in class next to you. He could have put them next to anybody else, but he chose in his sovereign wisdom to put them next to a Christian. To give them an opportunity to see his marvelous light, to hear, to observe your good deeds, to hear you tell them to proclaim his excellencies to them. How different would our lives be if we believed that God is sovereign over every little thing that happens? Like we say we believe. What if when we sit down next to someone on the city bus, we think to ourselves, you know, this person could have been sitting next to anyone in the whole city. But God, in his mercy, has caused this person to sit down next to a Christian. Maybe God means for me to have a conversation. Maybe God means for me to say hi. God could have put my son on any baseball team in the whole city with any players or any coach, with any other parents, but he gave us these. Maybe there's someone here he means to save. You know, God gave this poor waitress lots of tables today, but now she gets to have a table full of Christians. We can be a joy to her. Let's let's ask before we pray, if there's any way that we can pray for her. Let's tip her well. Let's be an encouragement to her. What if when we went to the store or took the kids to a doctor's appointment 
instead of just trying to get through it with incident. And I know that sometimes that that's enough, okay? But what if, instead of just trying to get through it with, without incident, what if we prayed instead that we would have an opportunity to give God, to give glory to God during those times? What if we just simply believed that they were an opportunity to give glory to God and we took advantage of those and prepared our hearts and our children for them? What if when we went out into the world, we went out full of gratitude, with hope, ready to give an answer when someone asks us for the hope that's within us? It doesn't have to be big, epic stuff. These interactions don't have to be full-blown gospel presentations. They may lead that direction. There is a time to sit down with people and to talk them through the gospel to sit down with them for hours, to talk about their sin, to talk about their problems, to talk about their pain, to talk about what God has done. We should be seeking those opportunities out as well. But let's take baby steps together. Let's think carefully this week, this week, about how we can give glory to God. Let's have faith, brothers and sisters. We can have faith for this, right? We can have faith to give glory to God this week. We can have faith to tell someone about his excellencies, his goodness, his character. Let's commit together to take that step this week. And let's plan on coming to our small groups next Sunday to share what the Lord did in our own lives and in our own hearts and in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have saved us from our sin. We thank you for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We pray, Father, that you would give us faith to love our friends and our neighbors, to be faithful in how we speak to them, to be faithful to testify to what you've done and to who you are and to your character, both by uh, showing our gratitude to you, um, but also exposing the sin and the darkness around us. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.